If you're just joining us, we are preaching through the book of Romans. I'm not going to give a long intro to that this morning like I do some mornings, but I think it's helpful to those who are just dropping by. Would you pray with me as we come to this text? Oh, Father, as we now listen to your word and seek to apply it to our hearts and lives, I pray that you would be with us, that you would um, teach us and instruct us, that you would be with all of us sinners, calling us to repentance, be with me, a sinner, as I seek to preach it. Pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So how you motivate people matters. How you motivate people. That's true, for instance, in the workplace. I feel like if any of you have jobs outside of the home with traditional kind of management structures, you know what I'm talking about. You've watched different managers in play. And, and look, there are some bad managers who are bad because they're like actually doing bad things, right? Like they're lying or cheating or stealing or something. But there aren't that many of those in the workplace. What I do think I have seen, though, are a lot of bad managers that were trying in different ways to be good managers, but, didn't, but did it in counterproductive ways. So like they wanted to motivate people, but they would do it by setting unrealistic goals or keeping on changing those goals or defining ridiculous expectations or micromanaging or yelling at people and beating them down. And here's the thing. If you asked the people that were doing all of that why they were doing that, if you said, why were you, you know, setting these unrealistic expectations and yelling at people, their answer would probably be that they want to help them be good employees, that they want to help the place be productive and successful But the way that those people are trying to motivate their employees is actually counterproductive. It's actually making them worse rather than better. Have you ever seen that happen? How you motivate people matters. That is true in the world, and it is true in the Christian life. From one angle, the way to view everything that's happened up to now in the book of Romans is as Paul talking about this idea He's been spending the last five chapters of Romans talking about bad ways to motivate obedience in the Christian life. As he declares that we are justified by faith alone and that it is God's grace and not our obedience that saves us, he's challenging all of these unhealthy ways that we can motivate people. So for instance, Christians sometimes use fear of God's anger to try to motivate obedience, fear of judgment and God's wrath. This is the strategy that when I was a teenager, I heard summed up as, sure, she's hot, but hell is hotter, to motivate obedience. (laughs) Or we heap guilt, or we heap guilt on people, right? We instead take the, you don't want to make baby Jesus cry approach, making people feel awful and terrible and try to change them that way. Or sometimes we use pride to motivate obedience in the Christian life. Look at those pagans. You don't want to be like them, do you? Or we motivate obedience by convincing people that they have to earn God's salvation or God's blessing, that they need to make a few more deposits in the righteousness account. And Paul has been spending the last five chapters of Romans taking all of those approaches to obedience and like stabbing them repeatedly with the cross, all right? He has been spending the last five chapters saying, no, 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 God isn't angry. His wrath has been satisfied in the death of Jesus. There's no fear of condemnation for you if you trust in Christ. 
And no, you aren't guilty. You have Jesus' righteousness. The Father looks at you and sees his Son's perfect obedience. And no, you can't be proud. You are a sinner saved by grace alone. And no, you can't earn your salvation. Jesus paid it all. And all of that is hugely important. The church is full of people ignoring what Paul says and using those bad approaches I just listed. And insofar as we have done that, we need to repent of that and stop it. But that can leave us with a question. I talk about those bad ways of managing people. And I remember um, I was working, I mean, I was a manager. Maybe I was a bad manager. I hope not. But I was working in retail and a manager, you know, that I had to go talk to who had a team. It was just really dysfunctional. And I sat down with him and had to, tried to talk through with him all of the things that he was doing that were unhealthy, right? He would constantly like play favorites and pit people against each other and you know kind of move the goalpost constantly trying to get people keep them on their toes and it was discouraging his team and we talked about that and I tried to express that to him but what he said was okay but Eric if I don't do that how in the world do I get my team to do anything and that is the question that Paul expects us to ask as well If you look at verse 1, that's really what he's saying. He says, in response to everything he said up to now, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? We feel that question, right? When we talk about God's free grace and the fact that we aren't, there's no condemnation and we have Christ's righteousness. Why not disobey then? Why not sin and just let grace grow? And so our reading this morning And the rest of chapter 6 of Romans, really, is Paul answering that question. And he really gives a couple of different answers, a couple of reasons that we should be obedient, but that aren't those destructive things that we listed earlier. So what we're going to do this week and the next two weeks is kind of have a mini sermon series within our sermon series through Romans, which I'm calling Free to be Righteous, for reasons that will become clear as we walk through it. But this week... And the next two weeks, we're really going to be asking this same question and trying to answer it in different ways. Why should we, as Christians, seek to be righteous? Why should we obey and fight against sin? So let's start here at the beginning of our text. The first thing Paul tells us in the verses that we read this morning is that we should be righteous because we are united to Christ. We're united to Christ. This is the idea behind everything that kind of gets said in this passage. It's an idea that's super important, but it's kind of a big theological idea. So before we just like read a verse to make that point, let me try to explain what that phrase means. There are things that we as Christians say frequently and just take for granted. Like, Jesus died for my sins, or I have Christ's righteousness. I said those things during the introduction this morning, right? And as Christians, we can all get kind of used to that way of talking. But how does that actually work? How does Jesus actually pay for my sins or I actually get his righteousness? I think that we usually think it works through a series of like bank transactions. Like we have the righteousness of Christ and that means that like Jesus went and earn some righteousness bucks, you know, and he's got this stack of, like, righteousness bucks, and then, I don't know, he, like, comes to church and, like, makes it rain for us, and then we grab the righteousness bucks, and that now we're, we have the righteousness that used to belong to Jesus. It's like a transaction. And maybe we don't use that extreme of an image, but I do think that sort of, like, financial thing is somewhere in the back of our heads, but that's not really how the Bible pictures it. 
It says that we have the righteousness of Christ, but it pictures us as getting things like that more through being plugged into Jesus than by being like handed some abstract thing. That when Jesus is earning righteousness, somehow in him we are earning it at the same time. And that's what we label union with Christ. The theologian Louis Burkhoff defines it like this. Union with Christ is that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength of their blessedness and salvation. So it's an intimate union, a personal connection, and it's vital, it's living, and it's spiritual. It's happening through the Holy Spirit. So we somehow are actually in relationship with, connected with Jesus And that the benefits of Christianity flow through that connection. And again, I know that's kind of a big idea. Let me try to show it to you in another passage before we look at Romans 6. Okay, so if you would turn to Ephesians 1, or we'll put it up on the screen if you don't want to turn there, but Ephesians chapter 1. And as you flip there, here's the thing to know. When we talk about this idea of union with Christ, the way that the Bible talks about that is with phrases like in Christ and with Christ, okay? And we often just jump past those phrases. But let's just start reading Ephesians 1 and just look for that language with me, okay? So it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him, Before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. We can keep going. Jump down to a few verses to verse 11. In him, in Jesus still, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. And that's, I know that's running through a lot of big ideas, but I run through all of that just to say, what is all the stuff we have just by being in Christ? What do we get from just being united with Christ? Here's my list from those verses. We receive blessing. We are chosen. We are adopted. We are given grace. We have redemption. We have hope. We are included. We are sealed with the Spirit. That somehow because I am connected to Jesus, I get like, that, that's the whole Christian shebang, right? Like that, that's the whole deal there that I get by being united with him. Here's why that matters. When we have a view of God that centers on transactions, we are keeping God himself at arm's length, right? We get, we get things from God and give things to God the way like I get, you know, change from the lady at the Starbucks counter. There's nothing very personal in that interaction, But union is something that is deeply intimate. It's a profound connection that we have with Jesus. It's an embrace or adoption into a family. And through that connection that we have with Jesus, the good stuff of Christianity comes. All of which is a very long kind of arc to get us here. But that brings us to Romans 6. Because that language that we talked about of union with Christ 
is all over this passage. So let me do that same thing with Romans 6 now, starting in verse 3. Let's just read part of it. Where don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Do you hear that? We're going to talk about the specific stuff that says in a minute, but the big picture answer of what Paul's saying here is that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. We're united with Christ. And already, before we talk about the specifics, that idea should start to change the way we think about obedience, if we just sit with it for a minute. Many of the most familiar images Jesus uses are meant to teach us about his union with us. I am the vine, he says in John 15, and you are the branches. So we are connected to Jesus the way like tree branches are connected to the tree, right? That, that life and sap flow from him into us and give us life. Jesus is the head of the body, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, and we are the members so we're connected to Jesus the way that like, like your, your head is connected to your body, that Jesus is the brain and we're the nerves and blood vessels. Ephesians 5 uses the image of marital intimacy. You know what I'm talking about. Um, it uses that image and says that that is the kind of union that we have with Christ. So before the specific stuff that Paul says, I just feel like the first part of the answer to why obey and why be righteous is because you're connected to Jesus like that. I remember years ago I had a friend, Ray, um, and he and I were just sitting around one night and out of the blue he gets this really intense look and he says, I've been thinking, Eric. And I was like, okay, Ray. This is, he did this a lot. But he, he said, I think if I really believed that Jesus was in me, and I was in him, that would like completely change my life. And I remember that moment because I came away from that just thinking like, yeah, it would, <laughs> right? That, um, I mean, wouldn't it? And Ray didn't mean that in the sense that like, you just know that Jesus is always there keeping an eye on you, so you better watch out, right? It's not just that like, Jesus lives in me the way, it's, it's not like the creepy Santa Claus thing. You know, he knows when you are sleeping or something like that. But he meant that having, having Christ present with us would alter how we lived, just, just like being, being present with anyone, having someone present with us alters us and changes us, that we suddenly have to view our lives in relationship with this person that is here with us, and that changes how we behave. And Jesus is with us like that. So that's the beginning of Paul's answer, just our union with Christ. But then he starts working that out in a couple of specific ways. He says we're united to Christ in some specific ways. And the first of those, he says, is that we have died with Christ. We have died with Christ. So look at verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul says we're baptized into Christ Jesus first. 
which I know can strike us as a little odd, and he's not, baptism isn't magic, right? Paul's not saying that somehow just by being baptized with water, you get all of these benefits. And we know that because he doesn't say that you were baptized, that, that the baptism was somehow what gave us this death to sin, right? It's, it's Christ's death through which we ultimately die, and baptism is this thing that's connecting us to that. But Baptism for Paul represents the outward mark of Christ's work, right? There's other things you need to do, too, to get it. You need to trust in Christ and repent um, of your sin and, and give your heart to him and be filled with his spirit. But all of that stuff is kind of internal and invisible. And what God gives is this outward mark of his promises that's meant to go along with that, which is baptism. So Paul's using baptism to stand for all that invisible stuff. But anyway, he says, if we are in Christ, if we're baptized into Jesus then part of being united with him like that is being united to his death. And that Paul goes on to say is that that means two different things. First, that means that we've died to our identity as sinners. So if you look at verse 7, he says, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now maybe that just means that people who are dead can't sin because they're dead. But I don't think that that's all there is to it. Instead, if you look at verse 6 right before... He says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. The first part of that, our old self was crucified with him. If you were here last week, that language might sound familiar. In the last part of Romans 5, Paul tells the story of the world and the gospel, all of humanity that's corrupted and sinful in Adam and trapped in spiritual death, and we said that the Bible calls that old humanity, right? And then Jesus comes, and this new humanity is formed. This was the picture that we used to illustrate that last week. If you weren't here, you can listen to that online. But when Paul talks about our old self being crucified, he's really talking about that same thing again, that in Jesus, our old humanity has been killed. Our identity as children of Adam, as people ruled by sin and death, has died with Jesus. We need to hear that language the right way. I think when we talk about the old self and the new self, some people in church kind of use those words, and they use them to describe like these two parts of themselves right now, right? You've got this old self, which is the part of you that still wants kind of sin and bad stuff, and you've got this new self, which is the part of you that wants Jesus, and they're like fighting with each other. And that conflict is a real thing, but that's not what Paul's talking about in this verse. Instead, he's saying that we were one type of human being, a human being whose identity was fundamentally something tied up with sin, and in Jesus, that old identity has been crucified. As John Stott puts it, what was crucified with Jesus was not a part of me called my old nature, but the whole of me as I was before I was a Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a part of me that still desires sin and wants sin and all of that. That's true, but that's not the thing that at my core, at the deepest and most real levels, is what's true of me anymore. And that makes more sense if we see the other thing that Paul means by dying to sin. He also means that we've died to sin's power. We've died to the power of sin. Start with verse 2. He says, By no means we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And when he says we've died to sin there, that sounds like more than just we've died to our identity or our old self. He's saying something about sin itself, 
But it can't mean that we don't sin anymore, right? Certain people read the verse that way. It can't mean that because the, the second phrase of that verse is, so don't live in it any longer, right? So we've died to sin in some real sense, but not in the sense that we're somehow perfect or don't still struggle with sin. So in what sense have we died to sin? Well, look at verse 6 again. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Our old self was crucified so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Or verse 9, Paul is explaining the finality of Jesus' death. And he says, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. So death, which is the consequence of sin in Scripture, no longer has mastery. So we have died to sin, not in the sense that we don't ever sin, but in the sense that its power over us is broken. Its mastery over us is broken. And here's why that really matters. So why do I sin when I do, right? Sometimes, I guess it's just because in the moment I make a bad decision. But oftentimes, there are kind of lies and things I believe that come before it. And one of the key lies that I often believe is that, um, is that I stand in this relationship to sin where it has power over me. Like when, when we talk about sin, have you ever noticed this? Oftentimes, we talk about it as if it's this force that you and I cannot beat, right? I, I stumbled. I fell into temptation. Sin dragged me down. And without Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that's sort of true. I'm still making choices, but I don't have the resources available to me to really ultimately triumph. But because of the work of Jesus, that isn't exactly true anymore. We often, as Christians, say that we're sinners. I say it every Sunday in our prayer. And there is one sense in which that is absolutely true. And that is the sense in that you, is, is the sense in that you and I still sin daily, right? Scripture tells us that we, are, that we still sin and that if we say that we're not, we're lying. It tells us to daily repent of our sins. In that sense, we're absolutely still sinners. But there is another sense in Scripture in which if you are in Christ, you're not still a sinner. And that is the sense in which we're talking about sin's power, right? There's this way of confronting temptation, I think, where what our hearts say is, well, I'm just a sinner. I just can't help it. And so we don't fight and we give in. And our response in those moments should instead be, I am a blood-bought saint of Jesus. I have died to sin, and I'm not going to live in it any longer. Or let me try to express this to you like this, because I feel like in this tension, it's so important to live. So, so every day, there's like a million different ways that we're tempted to sin, right? Like we don't even notice that often because we're so kind of blind to them, but there's a million little ways, right? That I can say a harsh word or be materialistic about this thing or, or sin in some way. Um, and I am a sinner in the sense that in a given day, I'm going to fall into a whole bunch of those temptations right? Like, I'm going to fail in some substantial number of those temptations because I'm a person still in process and I'm not yet glorified and Jesus is still working in me. And in that sense, I need to, I am a sinner and I need to daily be seeking those sins out and repenting of them. But in any given instance of temptation, I am not helpless. That in any given instance, we can, in Jesus Christ, resist sin. It doesn't have power over us. We aren't its slaves. 
So while we can't beat sin in the final absolute sense until the resurrection, we won't be free from it, we can, in any given instance of temptation, overcome it. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So we need to start believing and standing in our identity as Christians, that we are dead to sin, that we're not doomed to always fail. Every day will be a battle and a struggle, and we will at times fall. But in Jesus, we can also block some of the punches that sin throws now, right? Maybe even throw some of our own, and we can take hope in that. So that's one of the two specific applications Paul gives of our union with Christ, that in Christ we have died to sin. And then he gives a second one too. He says that we will rise with Christ. He says we will rise with Christ. Some of you might be wondering why that doesn't say we have been raised with Christ, right? Um, Because there is a sense in which we, as Christians, and in which the, the Bible sometimes uses resurrection as this image for what happens in the Christian life. New creation, new birth, right? I mean, from 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's true, but that's not what Paul is saying in Romans 6. Here's why I don't think that. If you look at verse 5, he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we have been united with Jesus in his death, but we will be united with Jesus in a resurrection like his. Future tense. Or he says it that way again in verse 8. He says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. That right now we have died with Christ, and we will, again future tense, also live with him. So why does Paul say it that way? Well, first, I think Paul is just, more than we appreciate, often careful about over-allegorizing the resurrection of Jesus Right? He doesn't, he resists just making it a kind of make believe symbol for new life or new birth. Jesus' resurrection for Paul is this thing that happened physically in history, and its primary hope for us is this thing that will happen physically in history to us when he returns and we're raised from the dead, and Paul doesn't want to like undercut that. But more than that, even though it's not an allegory, I think Paul's trying to tell us something important about our resurrection. So at the resurrection, we will have bodies, and we will be on this earth as Jesus has come back to it, and there's ways that this will still be a similar thing, but everything will also be changed. It will be changed because sin and death will be done away with in all of their forms and in all of their effects. All of my sinful desires and all of my selfish tendencies will be gone in the resurrection. My mortality And the limits that I have because of my mortality and the fact that I live in this body that is passing away, that will be gone at the resurrection. All of the issues we have between each other, all of the social dysfunction and all of that will be gone. The world itself, we're going to see this in Romans 8, Paul says the creation itself is groaning in agony waiting for that day because the effects of sin will be washed from the world. And so Paul is in essence saying, in Jesus' resurrection, that's where you're headed, right? That is the world that you are headed for, so live like that's where you're going today. That's his ultimate application in verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
You are dead to sin in Christ. Count yourself that way. And you will have that resurrection life. So count yourself today alive to God as well. Here's what I think that means in practice, okay? In that same job that I was a manager in, there was this girl who worked in HR, and she was a fine employee, right? With, in, in all the ways that fine kind of, you know, carries with it. Like, she did an adequate job. She was like 21 and still in college and, you know, just kind of working a job until she graduated, getting some experience, but never super motivated, never did great. But like six months before her graduation, this thing happened. Um, the company that we were working for... Um, she interviewed with them to get a job with corporate after graduation, right? And she got given, given a job. She was accepted for this gig. So six months from now, right? Not right now, but six months later, she was going to move to Florida and take over, um, you know, running HR at the store there and get paid a real salary and stuff. And here's what was interesting to me. She didn't have to change anything in the present because of that, right? She had this job, and as long as she, like, kept above the line where she got fired, like, what happened right now had no bearing on what was going to happen six months from now. But the way she worked completely changed. (laughs) She suddenly was super motivated and was trying to to grow and learn in her job and was like this cheerleader for the company in a way that we found really annoying. Um, And and, and she loved this place suddenly, not because something had changed about her present, but because suddenly where she was going had changed. And that future perspective made her view her present differently as well. We as Christians are called to do that, to view the present, not from the perspective of today, but from that future perspective of the resurrection, which should change how we view the present. We will one day be free from sin, and the world will be free from sin, and death will have no claim on us, and there will be no temptation, and we won't wrestle with guilt and fear. That is the world that we are bound for. And so right now, are we going to live for the things that are passing away in that world, that that the, that, that world is going to be free from, or are we going to seek to live for the things that in that new creation will be overflowing more and more in life? should alter how we live today. Not because we have to change, right? Again, not because it's like this guilt or fear thing, but because we are bound for that eternity. And so, of course, we should live for Jesus now as well. Let me try to sum all of this up like this. What Paul is doing in this text is through our union with Christ, redefining our past and our future. He's redefining our past and our future. Our sinful past does not have power over us anymore. It doesn't get to define us. It doesn't give us our identity. It isn't our past sins that have power over us anymore, but it's the death of Christ. And our future isn't just more of the same. It isn't just failure and frustration. Our future is victory and life and resurrection and new creation. So that's where we're going. And if that's true about our past, and if that's true about our future, then how can that not change how we live in the present as well? How can we believe that and not live right now as if those things are true? That is the question that Paul's asking. And that's really the first reason he gives us for living into the life that Christ calls us to. That we have died with Christ And we will live with Christ. And so we should count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Because in Jesus, that's what we are. 
Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I give you thanks for the work that we have in Jesus, the connection that we have to you through him and to him. I thank you for the power of his death that sets us free from the power of our sin and for the hope that we have in his resurrection. Pray that we would live into both of those realities today. Pray these things in his name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me and sing?
Amen. It is good to worship with all of you this morning. Please join us after the service for fellowship time in the fellowship hall. There are snacks, um, especially if you are a visitor, please join us. If you don't know the person next to you, as I say sometimes, we're all in Christ going to be spending eternity together, so you might as well get acquainted now. Um, And also feel free to join us after the service for adult education time if you want. We have a class going on discussing Christianity and technology and sorting out what faithfulness looks like in a world that's ever-changing technologically. Now go with the blessing of our Lord. In his death, Jesus Christ destroyed our deaths. In his resurrection, he restores our life. May you live into that hope until he comes again in glory. Amen.